and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. My guest today is Nicole Johnson. Nicole is a best-selling author, performer, and motivational speaker. She has a unique ability to blend humor with compassion as she captures the innermost feelings of women facing life's daily struggles. Like many women, Nicole has faced spirit-crushing chapters in her own life story. The divorce of her parents, childhood loneliness, and a difficult marriage that ended in a painful divorce for her. In the midst of these trials, Nicole has gathered together the pieces of her pain and formulating a life-changing philosophy. She believes life's greatest value can be found in these broken pieces, in that, like the grinding of coffee beans, only when the individual pieces are crushed can they come together to create something far more wonderful and potent than any of the pieces could alone. Listen as Nicole shares more about her story and her fresh-brewed life philosophy. Nicole, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I am just um, honored to have you today as my guest. Oh, thank you so much, Andrea. I'm thrilled to get to be with you. Well, I am excited just to hear um, your story and how you became involved. We talked, I've spoken to Jada already, and you are one of the three that's involved with the collaborative effort for the Bible study series known by name. So I'm excited to hear how you got involved with that and how God is using your story in it. Um, So we will get to that, but let's start off just introducing you kind of the the basics, the big thing is you are a best-selling author, a dramatist, a speaker, um, lots of things like that, a mom, but I'm going to ask you something just a little different because it's in one of your Bible studies um, to introduce yourself with the most honest Twitter profile ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, wow, I love that. You're a dramatist, okay. we're just going to do something fun here, okay? <laughs> okay. Um, how about, okay, wife, mom of two. Um, dramatist is right, um, mostly overwhelmed and glad this isn't a video call. (laughs) I'm right there with you on the video call. (laughs) I always make sure it's just audio only. You don't have to get Audio only. Audio, audio. (laughs) Right. And mostly overwhelmed, um, which we'll talk about because you have a book kind of addressing that, creating calm in the center of crazy. But um, yeah, but you can relate to most of us moms um, to feeling overwhelmed a lot of the time. Yeah. So very good. So I am excited. I don't know your story. A lot of the women I have on, I know their stories because I've read their books. Um, And even though you have books, they're not just your life story. You're tying a lot of other things in. Um, But God has used your life story to get you to where you're at. So if you could just take us back, starting with your story at an early age and kind of bring us to like a dramatist. Not everybody you talk to is a dramatist. Um, Mm. So how God got you and using you there where you're at. Most everybody I talk to doesn't know what a dramatist is, so that would probably be a good, <laughs> a good explanation. That's great, great idea. Tell us, tell us the definition of that. What what that means? Well, a dramatist is someone obviously who loves and studies has studied drama or theater, but a dramatist normally acts alone. So um, that's the thing that sort of makes what I do unique, other than just being. Um, you know, as many would describe an actor, and then people say, what do you act in? And then I normally say myself, but it's, um, it's a very unique kind of, um, kind of calling, I think, but I can go way back to the beginning and, um, and explain a little more about that. Yeah, because it's cool. I mean, 
it, the Lord has used that for mm-hmm. his glory because I mean, you, you do, you perform at the women of faith conference. Um, so it's not just you go and perform in just little theaters. I mean, the Lord has used that for you to speak to thousands of women. So yeah. Oh. So take us back to how you got into that and your early, your childhood. Cause I know you had some, uh, kind of traumatic heart events then. So I'll let you just take over and tell us. Great. Well, drama produces drama. I like to say oftentimes. So, um, when I was when I was six, my parents divorced, and it it was really a um, I didn't know it at the time, but probably the most defining drama or trauma of my of my childhood life. And my sister was a ballerina, and so she just danced and danced and sort of threw herself into into dancing. And I was kind of the comic relief of the family, often unintentionally. And you know, she might pirouette around the living room and I would fall off the couch, you know, to make people laugh like a Carol Burnett or, or something, Lily Tomlin, something like that. And so as I grew up, um, I think I, as I have described it, um, I wanted to probably be an actor because I wanted to wear other people's shoes and not my own shoes. And, it really kind of came to a head in junior high when I just felt so uncomfortable being anybody, being myself, probably most uncomfortably. So I began to, you know, write little dramas and be, you know, work audition for plays. And then in college, I studied theater and really found a place and a home and a sense of belonging in the theater. And I would say with a lot of other people that were trying to figure out whose shoes they were supposed to wear, Um, not necessarily, you know, people that really wanted to be in their own shoes either. And it wasn't until um, probably I started therapy in my mid twenties that I began to put words around the difficulty um, of my parents' divorce. And part of it was that in, in 1972, we were asked, my sister and I were asked to testify as to which parent we wanted to live with. And it wasn't mm-hmm. in judges' chambers in a closed, you know, informal setting. We had to enter the courtroom and go, you know, be seated on the witness stand and be sworn in. And I could see my mother sitting there and her attorney with her and my father on the other side and his attorney. And I could hear the judge, you know, in sort of an out of body experience, I think, ask me what would be, you know, the hardest question of my life, which was, which parent do you want to live with? Mm -hmm. And what I know now, Andrea, is that you know, being asked to make a decision like that, wearing shoes so small, um, can make you spend a lifetime of fear of making any decision because you could get it wrong. And what I didn't know is that that question, there's no right answer. So I was automatically going to get it wrong. There, There wasn't even a right answer for me, there was only a, a fling yourself out there because you you have to make this decision. And I knew that I was going to disappoint someone enormously. And that weight on me at six years old became 
such a a pivotal moment for me that was I found myself time and again in situations where I simply couldn't make a decision. Mm. I would be paralyzed by fear. And it took me until my 20s to realize that I had, you know, become a people pleaser. I had become afraid of conflict. I had become indecisive. I, I was outgoing and friendly and funny and all those things. But at the same time, I had a very hard time um, saying no in relationship because I felt the shame of disappointing someone at a very deep level. And yes. It's amazing that just at a young age, one, an incident like that, it had just such profound effects and rippled through, through your life. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, just amazing to hear. So yeah, keep talking. I interrupted, but But, no, no, you didn't, but that's exactly right. Because it wasn't until my twenties that I could connect the dots. And I think, you know, there are a couple of things that I, I encourage people now, like one, just do your best to not get married before 24 because that's when your brain is finally finished it developing and you begin to look back and make sense of your life and mm, that's good one of the greatest things you can bring to a spouse or to a family is having made some sense of your life and how you grew up and what your struggles are and where your trauma is because mm. those are the things that play out on a on a day-to-day basis um and and the second thing is just what what I like to say my favorite theologian Bruce Springsteen says <laughs> is that most of the trauma that's significant in our lives happens to us before the age of 12 and then we spend the rest of our lives dealing with that trauma and trying to figure it out and and see the ways that it's impacting our current lives isn't that the truth and i talked to so many women with these you know, very traumatic childhood stories. And it doesn't have to be like just terrific events. It's small things. I mean, we're being raised by imperfect people in this imperfect world and our young minds are affected by these things. Right. Exactly. That is, I think, the number one thing with women that think, oh, I don't have any of those traumatic events. It's like, unfortunately, you do. But Because you're comparing to the left and the right of others' traumatic events, you think, well, those things didn't happen to me. Therefore, I don't have any traumatic events. That means you just have to look a little bit harder and dig a little bit deeper um, to sort of find that those things, maybe even it's not even one thing, but just a, you know, a really hard relationship with an older brother or a younger brother or you know, an absent father, whatever it might be, there's stuff there that is affecting who we are and how we are today. Yeah. And I love how your analogy with the shoes and you share that in the, one of the Bible study videos, how that's kind of how you were coping with wearing these different shoes in your childhood and teenage years. You didn't want to walk in your own shoes. Um, How did you get to the point of, and I know it was years and in your twenties, but really when you were able to walk in your own shoes and accept who you are, what did the Lord have a role in that or counseling or just all of the above? Tell us how you got there. Well, it wasn't one moment, as you say, it was a journey and it was a process of sort of submitting myself to find the answers through therapy, through faith, my walk with the Lord. And, and the first thing I discovered is that I was angry. 
I was very angry in my 20s. And so I always say it's like a um, there angers. Gary Smalley used to say angers never buried dead. It's always buried alive. And because it has a way of surfacing, but you have to find out sort of the roots and the sources of those anger of those anger issues. And so one of those sources was my faith, because I had this, I came to faith in high school um, in a pretty much a pressure cooker. My mom had remarried a couple of times by then, and I was living um, with a new stepdad. And my sister, who had gone to live with our father, came to visit, and she began to tell me about the gospel. And it was like the best news I had ever heard in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was like, we can be loved, Nicole, we can be loved for free, just for who we are with all of our failings and shortcomings. And, and I remember just collapsing on my bed that night, I didn't want to, I was, I didn't want to break in front of my sister. Because again, she this is an old an old script, but she was the perfect spellerina and graceful and always seemed to have it together. And I was already involved in in drugs at the time, and I my life was just not going very well. And I remember collapsing in my room on my bed saying, you know, God, if if you are who you change who you say you are, you you're going to have to help me change because you know, I've, I've turned over more new leaves than the tree outside my window. You know, I don't know how to just simply become a different or better person or to be in a relationship with you. And so God met me at that, at that point. And I began just a wonderful relationship with him when I was 16. But in my 20s, I began to realize that theologically something in my life didn't make sense. And that is if God loved me so much, then why did I have to go through that? Why did he let that happen? Like if I'm supposed to see God as my father, um, and this is where it gets very personal. I chose my mother on the witness stand. Mm, So now what, why? I mean, is God a different father than my father? And I chose this father, my heavenly father, but I had some things to work out. And so I like to describe that there was that moment when I had to bring my my little white patent leather shoes, the ones I wore in the divorce trial that day. And I had to ask God, you know, where were you? Were you there? Did you see? Did you know? And did you let that happen to me anyway? And the most profound thing happened in that this picture of the gospel became very clear to me in that Jesus left heaven and he slipped his divine feet into human shoes, in essence, to embody, you know, the gospel to embody who God is so the world could see it and walk a mile so hard and so difficult that we could see that he knows where we're walking in the shoes that we're in. Yeah. And I had this sense that God saw and he knew, but what he assured me of is that 
I wasn't alone, as alone as I felt that because God is God and there is free will and we are sovereign, that he didn't just zap my parents and make them choose differently than they would have chosen and corral all the events of their lives to keep their relationship together and to keep me from having to go through that. What he would do instead is change me as a result of it because that he has control of my heart, my life. And so by bringing those shoes it was though, Andrea, he just made me this promise, like, it will not be wasted, Nicole. Yeah. You have yeah. gone through this, but you haven't gone through this for nothing. And that's just so powerful because your question of why did God allow this to happen, I think pretty much every woman I talk to with her story that they have the same question. And yeah. that is why I love women sharing their stories because every woman who has, um, you know, walked along the Lord through their stories, that's what they end up, you know, that God was with them and he's using it. Right. Um, he didn't allow it to happen, but he was with them and his fing- yeah. his fingerprints are all over your story to all, use it for his glory. And it's on, it. yeah. Right. And it's just again and again, I just get goosebumps just hearing women having that similar, similar thread through their story. Um, but Andrea, you know, we're so afraid to ask that question, where were you? Or to bring our anger to God. And it's like, because we, I had already come to faith, I thought I'm not supposed to be mad at God. There's so much in the world that's broken. I could be mad at that, or I can certainly be mad at my husband, but realizing that so much of my anger went back to like, why was I put on the spot like that? Like, why would my parents think that was a good idea? And why would God say okay to that? You know, right. And working, it is the working it through in the honesty that leads us to this other place um, on the other side of it. But I think so many women, especially Christian women, you know, anger is such a negative emotion in their minds. Like, I can't be angry. And least of all, I can't be angry with my heavenly father. Right. Because yeah. somehow that indicates I don't love Jesus. Yeah. Angry. But he wants the real us. And he knows anyway when we're angry. Um, right. And that's such a powerful message to keep getting out there that it's okay to be mad at God, to be angry at God. Like that's the real us, the honest oh, us. Exactly. And I, the the thing again about, about, Christian women, and I, I love them. I am one. (laughs) I know. It's a love hate thing. I get it. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Is that the more we pretend, then the more the real faith that we need becomes pretense. And so we simply, maybe we had an earthly father that again, once if we got angry, or we cried, or we were upset, then dad shut down and that wasn't acceptable or we got sent to our room and we have this equivalent love and fear for God. Like if I ask him, like, what were you thinking? (laughs) Then we're going to spiritually get sent to our room or we're going to be sidelined in ministry because we have a problem. Right. And And it's no good. 
Right. And another thing along those same lines that you were very honest about um, in one of the studies is, you know, your earthly father, you felt like the love was very kind of conditional. If he had a good day or you had a good day or he loved you and was, but if he didn't, and so it kind of was a point system and you even gave that to other people. So did you think God was the same? Did you struggle with that with your relationship with the Lord? Yeah. Of course. And that for me, you know, more than the points, the point system is a, is a drama about a woman whose dad is a stockbroker and that's Mm -hmm. how he sort of sees the world up or down on any given day. But for me with, in my, own life, my story was that I could devastatingly disappoint my father. So much so that he just had to withdraw from my life after the court decision. He was, he spent a lot of money trying to get us, you know, get custody of us. And we chose, my sister and I chose our mom and he was kind of done. for a while, a long while after that, because he was broken and devastated. And in my adult mind, I can understand that today. But the message that that sent to me as a little girl was, I've done, I've done it. I've, you know, I've killed him. And right, which is much interesting. It wasn't until years later, like the prodigal son felt when he said, give me my money. I want to go. And And then there is the dad, however many years, maybe decades later, when the son comes home. And then reforming a picture of a God that even though I have made choices that I think he might not have wanted me to make, I have never disappointed him beyond his ability to love me still. Yeah. And it's it like we've said, it is a process. And that is what these lives and our stories are about. It is yeah. not a couple chapters and we're done and we're healed. It is such a process. And one of the things I was reading um, just about you and one of your books called The Fresh Brood Life, um, that kind of is your become your philosophy on life, kind of taking mm-hmm. all your your past pains and spirit crushing <laughs> things. And that is and that's the end result. Tell us just a little bit of, about that philosophy. Yes. Well, I love coffee and I always have since my grandmother, since I was five or so, she would make me a little decaf with some cream in it in the mornings. <laughs> and and it just early on became, you know, a part of my life. But when I began to think about, you know, why do I love coffee so much? Part of it is it's such an it's such an invitation. It's not just a beverage. Like if I say to you, Andrea, let's get coffee, it's not because I'm thirsty or Right, you know, cold. It's because I want to sit with you. It's because I want to connect with you. And the unique thing about coffee as a beverage is that these beans, these coffee cherries are roasted and then they're completely ground up. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's those of us that have been roasted (laughs) and ground (laughs) up by life that produce the most aromatic experiences and connections because it takes all of us it takes what i call our whole being self like especially in the church we want to keep the best parts of us (laughs) and get rid of the worst parts of us Mm -hmm. and god is saying wait 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 no it's all of it bring it all because otherwise your life is not going to have that authentic 
flavor. It's not going to have that aroma that that draws people to you for connection because there's too much you're holding back. And in that way, coffee just became this this wonderful metaphor of just letting it all go in the blend and knowing that it all matters. And even when I can't sort it all out, God's got it. And the world, of course, is grinding it up, but God will not let it be wasted. And so out of it comes this you know, aromatic life that is rich and full and, and really enticing. Yeah. Yeah. And your book, I highly recommend it and we'll put the link to it. Um, but the fresh brewed life, which you just had a revision. Um, and like I said, I read through it last week and you have some great just journal prompts and it's definitely, um, a good one for women to have and to go through and just, um, grab a cup of coffee and, Mm -hmm. um, let it just simmer and read through and do the journal prompts. So how did, speaking of that book and then, um, the other books and you performing for women of faith, how did you get to that point? We've kind of Oh, yeah, about, yeah. We've talked about your past and all this stuff to work through. So it's not like, okay, I'm healed and now I'm going right. to write a book. Like, tell right. me that process and how God got you there. Right. So, yeah, let's start back with the question you asked me. It's the no, beginning. No, no, this has been great. So, no, now uh, I'm just, now that I know all this, I want to know how, how God used this story to get you where we're at. So, um, I studied theater in college and then began to really feel like, I had found my calling, but the thing was my faith at that point was such an important part of my life that I couldn't imagine just, um, studying theater alone. I mean, I was young in the faith and I was so afraid in many ways, like it would leave me. Like if I studied, if I went to New York and I studied theater, like that would somehow not be the right thing. And I think out of that, God just used that to, I just began to write material about faith and about struggles with faith and about, you know, becoming an authentic person of faith. And for, you know, whatever reason, God just began to multiply that and bless that. And at a time where there was really this was before Willow Creek was doing any drama in the church. And before, again, people even thought you could be an actor and be a Christian. Um, it became for me this way of communicating through like Oscar Wilde says, you know, um, ask a man a question and he'll lie every time, but give him a mask and he'll tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, getting to write and portray characters allowed me to address so many issues that people can't talk about, that right. people struggle with. The inside voice that is the real voice that we just suppress because we're trying to be, you know, good Christian women. And I think that it was the door for me, again, out of my broken past to listen to my own voices and then find a way to write material that would communicate about those needs or those desires or those all those feelings that we don't know what to do with. Right. And you you it's an array. I mean you're talking about or you do do you call them plays? What do we what do we, what is it called? I guess I, I don't know. I just call them sketches or vignettes okay. or dramas. I call them anything but skits. Okay. I didn't say skits, but <laughs> no, it's not. But, 
But Thank you address you. everything from like motherhood to cancer. Like you can, you get really real. And like, I love that. And now like what you said with the mask that you can, you can do that. Right. Uh, and the somehow problem is people either get the fact that I'm an actor and a dramatist or they think I'm beyond crazy and that more <laughs> things have happened to me in my life than anybody they could ever think of. Oh, that's funny. So poor yeah. <laughs> thing. She had breast cancer and, you know, she had this, you know, horrible situation with her mother and she had this awful mother with Alzheimer's and she had this, you know, I mean, the situations are and it's very I, I get it. It can be very confusing because when I wrote Shoes, which was the first autobiographical piece I had ever written then I sort of crossed the line from always playing a character every time you saw me to telling a little of my own story. And then out of that came my writing and it came my speaking. And so I'm still a dramatist, but now people are like doubly confused because, are, wait, are you being you or are you being a right. And right. I always take that as a very high compliment. Okay, well, I think I did that with the whole points thing. Because when I asked you that question, I thought, oh, that was you. But now when you said that, I'm like, oh, it wasn't her. So yes, I'm sorry, I, I got I got a little confused too. No, but that helps me tell you this. No, let me tell you this. And it's I'm so happy that we're, we get to have this conversation and we're talking about it. Because for the study, which is such a unique thing for me, because I always have done live drama for the most part. And then it's been captured on video. But this study was like making little movies, little yeah. scenarios. And so the director by choice, you know, didn't want to distinguish between what was my life and what was a character. So okay. I think it's profoundly confusing, but I also think it's kind of better because it doesn't really matter at the end of it if if you're moved and you connect with it that's the point of it okay good that makes me feel better because after yes. i asked you that i was like yeah well, i just not paying attention when i no, no 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 there was no explanation but see okay. as, okay. as dramatist i think that's easier um than like as a speaker i would never make up a story about myself and tell it if it wasn't true. But that's where I think the role of the dramatist is pretty unique and and pretty absent. So if there are women out there that want to write and perform drama, please get going, get started. You're late. <laughs> yeah, no, I I was involved with the creative arts. I actually led our creative arts ministry at a church I went to oh, before we moved is. here. So I know that, and we, we so overlook that, like the need for there are people that that's how they express their faith. You, but people through art, like it is such a part of our walk with God that needs to be just expounded on more, like you just said. Um, and so going back to the study, since we're talking about that, let's, how did you get involved with that? Cause like you said, it's a very unique study. Um, right now it's just, it's three parts study where it's Rahab, Hagar, and Naomi. Um, it's the named, uh, what is it? Known, Gosh, known by name. Known yeah. by name. I, my mind is like blank. Gosh. Yeah. Uh, known by name series. So how did you get involved with being part of that? So as, as you mentioned, I traveled with Women of Faith for really the better part of 15 years. And for 11, it was consecutive and nonstop. And then my son was born and I pulled back a little bit and other things, you know, began to happen. But 
and I traveled before then. I traveled with Gary Smalley, and I did things with Dennis Rainey and and um, the I Still Do conference and all kinds of um, conferences where I just loved writing and writing drama. So when I got a call from Zondervan, who's my publisher, uh, about this curriculum study and writing drama and being a team with three total of us, three women tackling, you know, the issues of three women in the Bible, I just felt like, wow, this was really made for me because I really love looking at the characters, the lives of women and helping other women understand that we're all really the same. Just like you said, like we're not alone. As private as our problem may be, there are many, many, many other women that have that struggle or have gone through that difficulty. And I love to say, you know, we don't like to go to the bathroom alone. We certainly don't want to go through (laughs) the hardest, deepest struggles of our lives by ourselves. And so when we can understand that there are other women out there and now take it a step further, that there are real authentic women of the Bible who have walked where we're walking, then that's just a, that's a bullseye. That's a target. That's a my wheelhouse. I mean, there's nothing that excites me more than saying to women of this culture, look, I know you feel alone and isolated and that is okay, but this is not new and you are not the only one. And God will be right where he has always been in history. And that is so near to those who call upon him. Yeah, absolutely. And it really is just a it's a very cool, powerful, like trying to think of the right adjectives. I've, I've led several Bible studies over the past few years, and it's, it's it's unique because, like you said, there's three of you that collaborate with it, and you each bring a different perspective in with it. Um, and it's just, it's good to see women, you guys as real women, talking about some of these issues um, and just sharing your different pasts and stories, but then also relating to the women in the Bible. So Rahab is the one that I've looked at and I know we can all, we could think, Oh, Rahab, what, you know, I don't have anything in common with her, but when you guys bring up the different parts of these women, we really mm-hmm. see that we do that our stories, mm-hmm. we can connect with these pages of scripture. Yeah. So how did you, how do you feel like you most connected with Rahab? Well, through the drama, obviously I got to explore sort of issues that Rahab experienced and felt, but I like to set them in a more contemporary setting. So rather than go back, you know, Jada and Casey sort of looked a lot at the um, at the historical Rahab and then again talked about issues and her issues and connected their own. But for me was to take those issues and create dramas. One of those that, that you mentioned, it's funny, at the top of the at the top of the show was the the Twitter account. Like I love to think, okay, what mm-hmm. would Ray have? What would her Twitter account be? First of all, what would it say? And then what would she be tweeting? And one of the insights, and I know, you know, it, it really was from the Lord, is that she would have been right in the middle of the hashtag me too mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. And yeah. I remember 
I was talking with one of the guys on the set about this, and he said, do you really think that, you know, she would have been connected to the Me Too movement? And I said, do you really think there is a prostitute out there who wasn't abused or violated or exploited at some time in her life before she went into that line of work? Really? Mm-hmm. And that yeah. was the first time I think that guy had ever thought about it like that. Wow. That just I gave know. me chills because it's like, how do you, uh, yeah. Yeah. The lack of awareness and mm-hmm. right. Yeah, you're exactly, exactly right. The complete lack of awareness. And for me to say that he felt like, I mean, a hashtag me too. Like I was putting some overlay on Rahab's life that wasn't true. And it's like, all we have to do is dig a little bit and think yeah. and feel. And there are certain truths that women know and understand. And that's where it's like, I, and again, as you said, that you don't have to be a prostitute or run a brothel to relate to Rahab. Um, there's so much in the connection of knowing these women of history that just speak right to our lives today where we are. And I, that's, so that, that's why I said, yes, that's why I jumped in with both feet to the project. And that's why I so hope that women will give it a try because it's really unique and, um, very compelling, I think. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I haven't looked through the other, the other two, Hagar and Naomi, but of all three of them, which would you say was the most, um, impactful study for you or the one you could relate to most either way? Wow. Well, I have to say, I there was something in each one that I just saw myself in and saw, you know, rich characters for me to create out of. Like I I, I will say the one I wasn't the most excited about doing um was Naomi. I knew yeah. you were going to say that. I don't you know did? why. We always kind of, because she's the same with me. I think of Naomi yeah. and I think oh, boring or something. That's so bad to say. Never exactly. mind. I shouldn't even say that. <laughs> no, but thank you. That's exactly right. I thought, I don't know. I'm not quite inspired yet. I mean, like Rahab and Hagar, the ideas just started coming right away. So I sort of pushed Naomi to the background. And then when I started to read the story, I thought, oh, my gosh. She is quite the character. And I really, really wanted to do a Jewish mother-in-law, but we kind of ruled that out a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> you need separate like outtakes, like what you wanted to do. <laughs> yes, exactly. Nicole's throwaways, bad opinions. But, you know, she went through these wonderful stages of of life service and servanthood to bitterness and being a martyr and, you know, pity party, and then back to healing and regular. And that's just in a, we all go through, you know, different uh, periods of our lives where we feel those things, but she is just this, you know, roller coaster ride. And unfortunately not tackling the whole of it I just grabbed pieces out of that, you know, the controlling, the controlling mother and the, the shatteredness of how she felt when, you know, being in a foreign country with her, her, um, husband passed away. Yeah. And then her two sons who died. And then, you know, she had such a sharp tongue. I mean, when the girls said, we want to go with you, she was like, 
So do you think I have more sons? Is that why you want to come with me? Okay. So I mean, there's more to Naomi than we think. So this is encouraging me. I'm going to do get the Naomi one and yeah. do that next. Yeah, no, she was uh, she was in a really tough spot and she was sort of lashing out at the two that actually just loved her and wanted to stay with her. And and that's what we do as women. You know, the, the very source that can offer us the hope and the healing, we, you know, sometimes have to turn on and go, OK, you too. And like when I when I wrote the drama about breast cancer, at one point, I say, you know, my husband, I, I would spar with my husband. The, the breast cancer drama is set in a, like in a boxing ring. And I would spar with my husband and I would, you know, he would say, um, oh, something about he will love me no matter what. And, and then he says, honey, you know, I say, I'm like, you have to, cause you're married to me. And he's like, if I lost my arm, would you love me any less? And she says, of course not. And he says, then would you trust me to love you as well as you love me? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so we we definitely take on those just for, for a moment. And then and that's what I love. One of the things I love, one of the Naomi moments that I, I really liked about the study. Well, I am excited to do that one now. You've encouraged me. And um, as with everything else, we'll put links to where to purchase those. But before we wrap up, tell me about a little bit about your latest book, The Creating Calm in the Center of Crazy. Oh, well. We the, talked about at the beginning because yeah. you have a crazy life. And tell us about that book. Yeah. The title does sort of speak to for itself. Yes. That it is this intentional goal of creating calm, but it really does come right out of this, you know, as my story, my life story of then entering into to motherhood, that when circumstances are trying to define our lives and making everything crazy. And if I had a dime for every woman who says my life is crazy busy, I I wouldn't have to write any books anymore. But um, that was a joke. Um, yeah, no, I know. I'm thinking, yeah, we've all yeah, said it. You we've say all it all said it. We do. But it's, it's our own responsibility. So circumstances definitely play a part of it. But it's our job to look at our lives and go, okay, that is circumstantial crazy. And that I can control by next time. I'm not, you know, going to commit to this or that, but creating calm is really about getting back to why we are women that believe in our faith, because that is the place where we can go to be loved unconditionally accepted regardless. And we simply don't spend enough time getting still and being reminded of our worth and our value. So like me, and this is, you know, part of my story, before long, I'm out there pleasing everybody, performing, and I have to be the one to stop and pull back in and go, okay, I'm creating the crazy. Yeah. So I've got to get back to my center of calm, that my worth is secure, I have nothing to prove, I'm loved as I am. And now I want to make decisions from that place. And we have to spend time in that place 
to be able to make decisions from that place. And so, you know, the secret really to creating calm is realizing, especially for women, the world is not going to fall apart if you stop. Yeah. And, and I think we're afraid, like you've kind of alluded to, I mean, we're afraid to have those periods of calm or stillness. I mean, I know it's, I struggle with that. I struggle more with that than saying, we think it's good to have a full plate and a million, running a million miles an hour. And we don't have to deal with things either when we're doing that. And we think we're being useful and all of that. But, um, the Lord can't use you quite so much when you're not having that calm and stillness. Right. That's exactly right. And your family is suffering. And it may be that your crazy is created by your activities at church. Yeah. Well, sometimes it takes getting still for God to just whisper right in there and say, you don't have to be living like this. This isn't for me. And then you go, oh, you know, like Homer Simpson. Nope. <laughs> I thought I was doing this for you. So if you're out, okay, well, what does that leave me? Okay, maybe I need to think about this. And sometimes it takes a, a crisis in our adult lives to, to remind us that we can get still and that we, you know, there is a lot to be afraid of when we get still, you know, if we've been running, then we're going to catch up to ourselves and, and we stay busy. So we don't have to look at those things, but that's a pattern that if we don't change it is going to create crazy around us also in our families, with our kids and our, in our marriage and with our friends. Right. And we have to be intentional. It's just right. not going to happen that our schedule clears. I mean, we have to be intentional of right. saying no and being, being close to the Lord of what he wants us saying yes to. Exactly. Um, so good. That's another then great one. So fresh brood live creating calm in the center of crazy. And I know you have several more that will, um, more books that will put links to and tell us where you, where you can be found. Where I, else you can be found. <laughs> I can be found at nicolejohnson.org. Okay. I can be found at um, on Instagram at Nicole Johnson LA, on Twitter okay. at Nicole Johnson LA, um, on Facebook at Nicole Johnson LA. Well, Nicole, yeah. thank you so much. You've been so fun to talk to you today, and just a breath of fresh air. I just appreciate you coming in and share or coming on and sharing um, all about yourself and the study. Oh, thanks, Andrea. Thanks for having me on, and I really appreciate the opportunity to remind women that they're not alone. My conversation with Nicole has left you encouraged as you examine your own life story. For information on where to find her and her resources, you can go to HerStorySpeaks.com. You can also find the links to where to purchase the Known by Name Bible Study series that we've talked about the past few weeks with the women who created it. Thanks for listening.